Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. I'm Mike Pratt and I'm joined by the lovely Cray Bolger today. Cray, thanks for being here. Hey Mike. So today we're going to start off with a new idea. We want to highlight some of the excellent published case reports that are out there that relate to point-of-care ultrasound. So we're going to try out this thing where each week we just let you know of a couple interesting cases and we'll link to them in the show notes. So I'm going to start off with a case titled Point-of-Care Ultrasonography for Evaluation of Blunt Tracheal Injury in the Journal of Cardiothoracic and Vascular Anesthesia. Really fascinating case of a 37-year-old who came in with a motor vehicle accident had a pretty obvious tracheal injury on exam. And the cool part is that in the operating room, they used ultrasound to actually visualize the defect in his trachea. And they show some images where there's actually bubbles coming out from the trachea through the soft tissue. So check out that one. Pretty cool case. Lots of nice images. Cray, how about you? Do you have a case? I do. I was like enthralled by this case. So this is the use of -of point-of-care ultrasound to detect alternate causes of flank pain in a patient with presumed renal colic. You're like, okay, blah, blah, we've done this for years. But as I'm reading this case, it was like a mystery novel. It was a 34-year-old, so healthy person, severe left flank pain. You're like, ah, kidney stone, spoiler alert, not kidney stone. Um, Patient ended up getting his non-con CT and had some pretty abnormal vitals and labs, so they decided to do a cardiac ultrasound and found a huge LV thrombus, like so huge, it actually looks like septal hypertrophy, but it's not. And he ended up having renal infarcts and a pulmonary embolism secondary to the thrombus. Whoa. So check that out. The images are super awesome. All right, so Craig, what article are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about an article from Wilson et al., the novice emergency physician ultrasonography of optic nerve sheath diameter compared to ophthalmologist fundoscopic evaluation for papilledema. And this is from the Journal of American College of Emergency Physicians Open Access in January 2021. As technology has increased, many would argue that a lot of our physical exam skills have decreased, especially our dilated or our fundoscopic exam at the bedside. And this is something that actually is really important in emergency medicine. It can warn us of bad things to come, signs of elevated intracranial pressure. So if you're not good at it, potentially could ultrasound fill that void. Now, that's not to say to any med ones listening, ignore your fundamentals of physical exam course because, spoiler alert, I don't think ultrasound fills that void quite yet. But this article is going to help us look at that. This was saying, since we know that our ability to do a fundoscopic exam is very inconsistent from the literature and not great for looking for papilledema, and we want to know when to consult our ophthalmology colleagues. We're not just going to consult them anytime somebody says, my eyeball XYZ, right? That would be mean. So can ultrasound fill that void? And that was kind of the question that they asked is with novice emergency physicians, so they took their trainees, primarily their interns at a tertiary care center and said, can they use this ultrasound to meet sensitivities and specificities comparable to that of our ophthalmologist for identifying papilledema? 
So for the methodology of this paper, these were emergency department patients over three years, and they took any adult patients with a primary vision complaint who was going to get an ophthalmologic consultation and a bedside ocular ultrasound. And I think this is where this study varies from some of the past literature on optic nerve sheath diameter. Their population was people with vision complaints, not people with suspected intracranial pressure from all comers. It's only if they had a visual complaint. And they excluded people who did not receive both the formal ophthalmology consultation and a bedside ultrasound. This was a retrospective chart review study. They identified the patients who got the ultrasounds for vision complaint. And then what they did was they compared the measurement of the optic nerve sheath diameter to the grading of the papilledema on the ophthalmologist's examination. And their primary outcome was looking for the sensitivity, specificity, and all those other accuracy indices. And they looked at the receiver operating characteristics to try to figure out the best cutoff for the optic nerve sheath diameter for the optimal accuracy. Now, as Cray mentioned, these were novice resident emergency physicians. Most of them were actually on their ultrasound rotation, meaning that depending on their medical school education, they could have had up to no experience with ocular ultrasound. Overall, the study, it was 55 different residents, and they were from years one to four, so probably a a pretty good range of experiences as well. For the scan, it was pretty typical how they did this scan. They And I actually liked it. They detailed it nicely. Linear probe, they measured the diameter three millimeters posterior to the retina, and they measured it in two planes and averaged it. And I liked that idea. They used the pretty standard cutoff of five millimeters. So greater than five millimeters was considered abnormal and consistent with papilledema in this study. So what did they find, Cray? I like this data just because I think it's interesting the way they presented it. They looked at 372 eyes, which were 212 encounters, which simple mathematicians will say, that doesn't make sense. But some of them only did one eyeball. 206 unique patients because some of them came back. Um, And as we can do the math, not everybody had both eyes looked at, which we think is really important when we start to think about causes of papilledema. If it's not bilateral, you're differential changes quite a bit. Um, Their patients were uh, fairly uh, young with a mean age of 37 who had papilledema and 48 without papilledema. They were about a 50-50 split with gender um, and they had a decent uh, percentage of pathology. About 13.2% of their patients had uh, papilledema, the majority of which were female. And so when they used our standard cutoff of five millimeters or greater for diagnosis of papilledema, they had a sensitivity of 46.9% with a pretty wide confidence interval too. Their specificity was much better, 87% with a much narrower confidence interval of 82.8 to 90.5%. So the positive likelihood ratio was 3.61 with a negative likelihood ratio of 0.61. Their area under the curve analysis showed that the cutoff of 4.6 had a higher sensitivity and um, a lower specificity, uh, which is really, in a lot of these patients, what we're looking for. We don't want to miss something with the eyeball being wrong, right? Like, great if I made the right diagnosis, but worse if I missed it and sent you home and you end up with like long-term vision loss. That's 
I think a deviation from what most of our standard practices are if you're using this in your clinical practice. So Mike, what do you think about this study? I liked that they had a pretty practical reference standard comparing it to the ophthalmologist's exam as opposed to prior studies where they compare it to CT findings or uh, direct measurements of intracranial pressure. I mean, that would be ideal, but in this case, this is probably how a lot of people's practice flows. If you are concerned for it, oftentimes you'll get ophthalmology involved, and so that's a reasonable standard. And compared to a lot of the other studies, this is a pretty large N. I like how they had a, a number of different eyeballs, 372 eyeballs, so that that's a pretty good size to draw some conclusions from. And yeah, I think by involving more novice sonographers, that allows us to assess, is this a feasible practice? Is this going to work in real life with people who may not be experts at doing eyeball ultrasound all the time? One thing I had a thought about with this, though, is the way they ruled them in is anybody with eye complaints um, and then getting ultrasound, which their percentage of people who are getting ocular ultrasounds having QA'd for many years seems a little bit high. So I don't know if there was maybe some training bias, like, hey, we're doing this study, so more people are doing ultrasounds, which obviously the more you do, the more you're going to change your sensitivity and specificity and your percentage of pathology because that's not your target population necessarily. I think it was interesting, too, that the people they were doing it on they were using ultrasound to look for papilledema, which I don't think is necessarily common practice. I would say majority of people reach for ocular ultrasound for pathologies such as retinal or vitreous detachments. Um, and I think the presenting complaints where papilledema could be on your differential is pretty broad. Headache, nausea, vomiting, it's not just going to be vision changes. So I'm wondering even if we're missing some that are getting picked up on other testing, like you mentioned, CT, um, etc. before vision changes becomes their main complaint. Because if my head feels like it's going to explode, I might not mention to you that my vision's a little bit blurry on top of that. Um, so that would be my thought on how it was, they were screened. Because I don't think this is as common practice as we would potentially like it to be. And part of it is studies like this that show lower sensitivity and specificity have been done in the past. And so I think less of us reach for it to make us ourselves feel better about our ability to diagnose papilledema. And along with the criteria for inclusion in this study, I think you're bringing up the point that the, the most glaring limitation is the retrospective nature of it because we don't actually know how they made the choices for a lot of those things prospectively because we're just looking back and seeing who got an ultrasound, who got an ophthalmology consultation, and a lot goes into those decisions. And so this could be a biased population that we don't really know in what direction it could be. So I think that's important to keep in mind as we're interpreting this data. The other thing that I was kind of surprised by is that the way that this panned out and the results was kind of opposite of what a lot of other optic nerve sheath diameter studies have shown. Because this study showed a pretty low sensitivity and a higher specificity, but a lot of the prior work, and by a lot I mean many meta-analyses of this, have shown a high sensitivity and a lower specificity. So that is a little bit strange to me, and I don't know if it's explained because of the different patient population that they're selecting. Some of the other studies, it was trauma or 
headaches or some of those other things you mentioned, Cray, basically anybody that could have had elevated intracranial pressure from any cause. So maybe that explains it, but it makes me a little bit hesitant to trust this since there's such a large body of literature that goes a little bit the other direction. The optic nerve is very finicky. Um, And there's a lot of things that can affect it. And we don't know if the optic nerve sheath diameters are acute or chronic. Um, And as we know, in a lot of these past studies, they don't correlate necessarily directly with certain levels of ICP. So what you do with a dilated optic nerve is still a a mystery. One thing we've talked about before um, on the podcast that I think is super interesting, and I have hope for it. I had hope for the optic nerve sheath like 10 years ago. And while I haven't like completely abandoned it, it's definitely not my go-to favorite scan. Because just like I have favorite children, I have favorite scans. And papilledema, <laughs> optic nerve sheath diameters are not one of them. I'm really excited about this optic nerve elevation, which we talked about when we were chatting with the crew from Denver. I think there's a lot of hope for this in prognosticating, maybe not in diagnosing, but in prognosticating head injuries. And so I would love to see more come out on that. But I think we have to go back to our roots, which I know those of you who know me are going to be like, what? And we have to come back to the physical exam. I don't think ultrasound, at least in this way, is going to fix our problem of our ability to diagnose papilledema. Plus, you're missing a lot of other things on your fundoscopic exam, let's be honest. Like you're missing your thunder clouds and your nicking and things that could indicate other pathology. So even if you do or don't see papilledema, you might be missing something else by relying solely on ultrasound and not your physical exam. Well said, I have to agree. I don't think that we are quite there yet where ultrasound can replace your fundoscopic exam. So let me summarize this study. This is a retrospective study of 372 eyes of emergency department patients with visual complaints, and they found that compared to an ophthalmologist's exam, the point-of-care ultrasound optic nerve sheath diameter was 87% specific and less than 50% sensitive. So the take-home points for this article are that based on this article, although it suggests that optic nerve sheath diameter is not sufficiently accurate enough to rule in or rule out, an elevated intracranial pressure as a cause of their visual complaint, I think given the limitations of this study, you shouldn't really change your practice based on it. Now, prospective research is still needed to evaluate whether or not these patients can be a distinct population from the other ones that have been studied for optic nerve sheath diameter. That would be really interesting. Thanks so much to the authors who put together this study and performed it. A special shout out to Casey Wilson, (laughs) Dallas Town, Go Wildcats, Casey, thanks for doing this article along with your team. And thank you, listeners, for continuing to tune in to our podcast. As always, you can find out more at ultrasoundgel.org. Talk to us on Twitter. Until then, we'll talk to you later. More. 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 Go Wildcats.